so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. For there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. title of this sermon is Love Conquers Fear. Love Conquers Fear. I desire this morning that you would uh, know and be changed by the love of God. That you would know and be changed by the love of God. You know, this past year, uh, fear... Fear has been a major part of many people's lives. COVID-19 has interrupted the world, the lives of countless people on this globe has, has been derailed by this tiny virus, causing everybody to be more careful with what they touch, where they go, who they're with, rightly so, because of the nature of the virus. But, but I want to focus in on not vaccines, not face masks, not social distancing. I want to focus in on the heart of it all. I believe the heart of much of what we see and uh, even what we would characterize as overreactions or something like that, the heart of it is fear, really. It's fear. People aren't afraid of the virus, though, right? They're not afraid of the virus, per se. They're afraid of death. That's the great enemy of mankind, you could say. Fear of death has consumed our thinking. Never before in the history, uh, as far as I can remember or am aware of, never before have we been so glued to uh, these statistics of how many people died that day. It's this fear of death has been all-consuming. But why do we fear dying? Why do we fear dying? The, the root of fear of death comes from the reality of the judgment that comes after death. Hebrews 9.27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Death is the twin of judgment. They come hand in hand. There is coming a day when mankind will be judged by God. And after death, that judgment is ushered in. 
So there's this fear of death. And the fear of death is really the fear of judgment. We may not be able to articulate that. Your average person may not be able to uh, uh, perceive that or, or, or to say, that, say it that way. But really, when you peel back the layers of the onion, as it were, that's what's there at the core. It's this fear of death because of the fear of judgment. Because we don't know what happens after unless God tells us in his word. Christian, God does not want you to live the rest of your life under the constant fear of death. That's not his plan for you, Christian. If you're an unbeliever, you should be afraid of death. And that is right. But God offers a way out from under that fear. Now, of course, uh, reverent fear for God is encouraged and even demanded in Scripture. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, of course, yes, fear is good when it's towards God. It's the beginning of knowledge. It is the high point of knowledge. It is the fountainhead of knowledge and wisdom. This holy and reverent fear of worship towards God as judge is good and is is healthy. However, God offers to set you free from the fear of death and judgment. And you could say that God's vaccine for fear is found in his love for sinners. 1 John 4, verse 18. This is the heart of this passage, and it's really the heart of this sermon. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. The way to have victory over fear is to be perfected in love. To be perfected in love. Well, what does that mean? And, and how do we get there so that we can be free from fear? Well, it is to believe in the love of God and to be changed by the love of God. Those are our two points this morning. Believe in the love of God and be changed by the love of God. If you would believe in his love and be changed by it as a believer in Christ, you will be set free from fear of death and judgment. Verse 15, you must believe in the love of God. Notice where this Perfect love that casts out fear comes from. He begins in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So first of all, you must know who Jesus is. You must know and confess who Jesus is. Confess means to to agree with or to say with. 
you must agree with Jesus' estimation and claims of himself. And God's revelation of his son, you must agree with that. The, the Jesus of Scripture must be your Jesus, not some figment of your imagination. Who is this Jesus? Well, he is the Son of God. The Son of God the Father. And this man, who was God, is God, walked the earth 2,000 years ago. This man who walked this earth, though, excuse me, did not begin 2,000 years ago. As a matter of fact, this person, the Son of God, who walked this earth in human form 2,000 years ago, did not have a beginning at all. He has been God for all eternity past. The eternal Son of God became a man. Born in a small town, born in humility, in a manger. This Jesus was not just a good teacher, not just some compassionate soul. He was not a revolutionary. He wasn't just a good example, and he was not a martyr. He was, and he is, God. Jesus is Lord. He is 100% human, but he is also 100% God. This, this God man, Jesus Christ, lived his years here on earth in perfect obedience to God, perfect obedience to his Father. He never failed, he never faltered. He was the spotless Lamb of God. Without blemish, his righteousness was complete and full. This man is the perfection of humanity. You want the Psalm 1 prototype, the, 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 the Proverbs ultimate man, ultimate human being. It's Jesus Christ. He is the epitome of what it means to be human. If you know Christ personally, then you have come to know how he loves you. And that's exactly what John gets to next in verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. To have victory over fear, you must know Christ, and you must believe God's love for his people. So how do we know about God's love? How do we know how God loves us? Well, where, where do we see this love of God? If we are to come to know this love, if it is to be perfected, and so that we can be free of fear, how can I know the love of God? Well, John 3.16, for starters, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. 
in this very context. Look at 1 John 4, 9 and 10. How do we see the love of God? Where do we see it? Well, he tells us in the verses before. Verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us. It was shown or revealed in us. How? Here's how. God has sent his only begotten son into the world. Sounds like John 3.16, doesn't it? So that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God for his people moved God the Father to save his people from perishing in eternal death. It moved him to save them. And God's love moved him to save us from death and to give us eternal life. Even though, for God the Father, it would cost him his only begotten son out of love for us, he sent him. God gave his best, his highest, his beloved son, When it says he sent his son there, look what it says. Verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us that he sent his only begotten son into the world. When it says he sent his son, what does that mean? Is that just he sent him away on some journey? No. He sent the son to die. On the cross. That's where he sent him to. He did not necessarily send him to the manger. And then we'll see how it unfolds. No. In his sending of the son into the world. He was sending him to the cross. He had to go through the manger. And through, the, through his, his young life. To get to that point. But he was sending him to the cross. That's what it means. He sent his son to the cross. He gave his son. That is, he gave him up. He surrendered him. Christ came to die in the place of sinners, in the place of you and I, as our substitution. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's what was happening there on the cross. He was bearing our sins, the guilt and the weight and the judgment of all your sins, all those times where you did not love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. All those times that you don't do that, you deserve eternal wrath. And that eternal wrath was being poured out on Jesus Christ there in those few hours on the cross instead of you. 
And so therefore, it says in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. Who's the just and who's the unjust? We're the unjust. In Christ, the just one, the righteous one, the perfect one, died for us. When it says the just for the unjust, Christ died for you, it's not he died that you might benefit. It's not that he died, like, I, I, I bought this for you. It's not that. It's Christ died instead of you or in your place. That's what the word for means in the Greek. Why? In that same verse, the just for the unjust, the just in the place of the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. You see, you can't get to God unless Christ brings you to him. You can't get to him by by attending a church. You can't get to him by helping an old lady across the street. You can't get to him by good grades. You can't get to him by good works. You can't get to him by good motivations. You can't get to him by by, just being religious and being an authentic person. No, you get to God because Christ brings you to God. And the only way that you can get to God is if you come to Christ, bow the knee before him in humble faith and adoration, and he takes you on his back and he brings you to God. That's the only way. This is the love of God. That's the love of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the love of God. So when we read in verse 16, 1 John 4, 16, we have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. That's what we have come to know and believe. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you must know the gospel. You must believe the gospel in order for this love to be perfected within you, it says. Verse 16. In the middle of the verse, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This kind of love, this love of God is is so great, is such a central part of who God is, that it is a defining quality of God. That's why he says God is love. It defines him. Now we know God is just. God is jealous, God is creator, God is righteous, God is pure and holy, God is all-powerful. We know God is all these things. But here, this is a central defining quality of the nature and the character of God. He is love. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are abiding in his love, he says. And it says, he abides in you. 
What does that mean? That means that you, believer, have an intimate relationship with God. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. If you believe on the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you believe and have come to know that, then you abide in his love. And if you abide in his love, if you believe and, and, as it were, dwell within the sphere of his love, then you are within God and God is within you. And that's just a way of saying, again, that you have this intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. But notice, this great one, this God who you dwell within and who dwells within you, he is defined by love. So as you dwell within God, you dwell in this God who is love. And as God dwells within you and you relate to him, the defining tone or mark of your relationship with God is his love for you. Christian, that is what it means to be in this intimate communion with God. It is to be full of his love. And I don't mean that in some mushy way. I mean it, you, you understand the gospel, you understand the love of God, and, you, and yet you are aware of his justice and his might. And you say, why would you love me? Why would you send your son to die in my place? Why would you do that? It's only because I love you, he says. And as you experience that, as you, as you have those kinds of interactions with God, you are abiding in his love. So you must believe in the love of God, but you also must be changed by the love of God. Verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. You see, the more you come to know the God of love, right? Because in verse 16, it says, we have come to know and have believed in the love that God has for us. The more that you come to know the, the, the love of God and the God of love, the more love is perfected within you. What does that mean? It means that, that the love of God permeates your soul. And if the love of God saturates your soul, it has two results. One, you will have no fear. You will have no fear. Rather, you will have great confidence in the day of judgment. And... The second result is the, of the love of God permeating your soul is that your own life will also be marked by the same love for others. Let me flesh this out for you here. He gets to that first result in verse 18, right? In verse 17, he says, By this, the love of God, 
the, the, this, by this, excuse me, the love is perfected with us, so that, result, we may have confidence in the day of judgment. We may have confidence in the day of judgment. Jump down to verse 18. What is he talking about here? Judgment. He says in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. You see, as a believer, when you look at the day of judgment, you can either have confidence or you can have fear. And the more you love, or excuse me, the more you know the love of God for you, the smaller and smaller and smaller the fear of that day will be. And, in, and intimately tied with that, the fear of death, you see. But he also says this. By this, love is perfected with us, so that, first result, we have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, here's a second result, because as he is, so also are we in this world. What does he mean there? As he is, so also are we in this world. Well, let's break that apart. As he is. Well, how is God? Or what is God like? If we are to answer this question, how is he or or, or what is he like? Define as he is. Where do you go? You go to the verse right before. And the verse right before says what about God? God is love. So as God is love, then so also are we in this world. We are love in this world. We are to be, that is, we are to be defined by love in this world. Not by division, not by resentment, not by bitterness, not by unforgiveness, Not by isolation, but by love, church. God is known by his love. And so we also ought to be known by the love of God in this world. This growth, this spread, this perfection, of the love of God in our minds and our souls and in our life as we live this out. This growth, this this perfecting, this completing of the love of God in us, both internally and externally, what it does as that grows is it pushes out death. Excuse me, it pushes out fear of death. So the more I know the gospel, know the love of God, and am convinced of that and believe in that, and the more that 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 love of God changes me in how I treat others, the more that those two things happen, there will be less and less room for fear in my life. Less and less space for, for fear of death and judgment in my mind and heart. You see? 
Where God's love indwells the mind, fear is cast out. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That is a truth. That is a reality. That is a promise. Perfect love casts out fear. Are you fearful? Then dwell on the love of God. Where God's love indwells the mind, fear is evicted. Where God's love permeates the soul, fear is flushed out. Where God's love fills the Christian, there is therefore no room left for fear. Where God's love reigns the life of the believer, fear is defeated. Romans 8, 14 and 15 says, All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You see, are you a slave or a son of God? Are you a slave of God or are you a child of God? Are you a slave to God in that you're trying to earn his favor? Trying to earn your way to heaven? Trying to earn his blessings upon your life? Or are you simply resting in that relationship of being his beloved child? Confident in his love. See, my children don't have to worry if I'm going to feed them dinner tonight. They don't have to earn dinner. Because they're my child... I will feed them, you see. They don't have to worry if I'm going to change the locks on the doors, right, sometime this week, and all of a sudden they won't be able to get in and find safety. No, because they are my children, they are part of, they are part of my life and they are under my care and protection. They don't have to be good enough to earn that. They're my child. And so they have that inherently. Christian, you don't have to earn God's protection. You don't have to earn his favor. You don't have to earn his blessing upon your life. You don't have to earn his provision and his care for you. You have that as a child of God. It's yours. The more you are convinced of that, the less you're going to fear. Not just death, but just the things of life. What tomorrow holds. How I'm going to pay my bills. Who I'm going to end up with. All those things fade to the background as this, this bright light of the love of God just uh, intensifies. You see... We're talking about ultimate things here. We're talking about the ultimate judgment, right? Specifically. And torment and punishment are realities that we as sons and daughters of God will never, ever experience. Because we are forgiven in Christ. And if that's true, 
then will he not care for you today? Now, when we talk about love being perfected or matured in us, is that a love for God or is that a love for others? Well, yes. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So you see, in verse 19 through 21, 19, 20, and 21, those have to do with our love for one another, for our brother, for our sister in Christ. In verse 18, what it seems like he's talking about here is our love for God. And in verse 17, he, he gives this, he, what he did is he gave this summary statement. Love is perfected with us so that we have confidence in the day of judgment. That is verse 18. And because as he is, so also are we in the world. That is verse 19, 20, and 21. So verse 17 has both those realities. And then verse 18 handles the first with this fear of judgment being cast out because of our confidence in the love of God. And then verse 19, 20, and 21 have to do with our being the love of God in this world. As God is, so also are we in this world. What does that look like? Well, look at verse 19, 20, and 21. Your capacity. Verse 19, your capacity, Christian, your ability to love at all, at all, is present only because God first loved you. So when he says we love because he first loved us, it is true. We love God because he first loved us. And it's also true that we love one another because he first loved us. Your capacity to love at all, whether it's God or man, your capacity and ability to love, period, is initiated and created by the love of God first towards you. Notice, in these verses, verse 20 and 21, you cannot love God and not love your neighbor. You can't love your neighbor while not loving God, though, you see. So you can't love God and then hate your neighbor. But you also can't hate God and then turn around and truly love your neighbor. The ability to love at all is predicated upon the fact that God first loved us. Both are the product of God shedding his love upon you, Christian. Both are proof that you are a Christian. In fact, if you don't love and care for your brother in Christ, then you are already condemned. That's what he's saying. Look at Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. 
let's see how important our love for one another is in the economy of God. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Oh, what a, what a sight that will be. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, so there's this great separation of mankind. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then look what he says. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, or thirsty, and, and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So your good works, your love towards your brethren and your sisters in Christ doesn't earn your way to heaven, but it proves you're headed there. We see the other side of this drama in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. How do we know they're accursed ones? By their life that they lived on this earth. He says, verse 42, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you to the extent that you did not do it to the least of these. You did not do it to me. These cursed ones, ones who did not, were, were not marked by the love of God for the church and for the brethren, for Christ's brothers, even the least of them, those ones, verse 46, will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, the ones who prove their righteousness, the ones who prove that they have been made righteous by God, those ones who are defined by the righteousness and the love of God in their treatment of, of the church and one another, those ones will go into eternal life. This is a defining mark of, uh, this is what will separate people in the end. This will be proof that, you sh that the sinner should go into eternal judgment and proof that God has truly shed his grace upon us and that we ought to go to heaven because God has changed us and we can prove it. We can validate it by our life. But you might think, well, isn't it enough for me just to love God? 
I mean, isn't that really it? That's the main thing, right? Isn't it enough for me just to love God? That's the most important thing. If I love God, he won't reject me because I don't get along with people, will he? Matthew 22, just a few pages back, or swipes up in your phone wherever you're at. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. They said, okay, it's our turn. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. This, this was the evil intent to test him and to prove him wrong. Here's his test. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, that is Christ, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And you can imagine if it stops there, then this man would say, Got it. I'm there. All right, I'm in. Because you can't prove that I don't love God. It's internal. But notice, he doesn't stop there. The second is like it, verse 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. This great commandment is the question. What's the great commandment? What, it, what, this, what the word great means is highest in importance, greatest in significance, in its necessity. The greatest most significant, most important, most essential command is to love the Lord your God. But he says the second is like it. The second is like it. Like it in, in which way? In that both of them are talking about love? No. Like it in its importance, its significance, its necessity. The second is great like it. You see, first John in there, don't you? You can't love God and then hate your brother or your sister. The second is like it in essential necessity and significance. You must love one another or you're not in the kingdom. One pastor puts it this way, love and fear, speaking about 1 John 4, love and fear are not compatible. When we experience God's love for us, our whole attitude towards Him is transformed. We will stand in awe of Him, but that awe is without terror or fear of punishment. And the more we live in love, and living in love means Expressing as well as receiving love. So living in love, abiding in the love of God means expressing and receiving the love of God. Receiving it from God and expressing it to others. The more we live in love, the more confident we become in our relationship with the Lord. So if you fear death, Christian, it could be that you are not loving others the way you ought. Could be because your foundation 
of confidence for that day of judgment is a little shaky in your mind. And that may be the right thing because, because if you don't love your brother or your sister, something is wrong. Something is, is, is deathly wrong. If the fear of death, death controls you, Friend, if you don't know the Lord, you're controlled by death, and maybe you've seen that in your life this past year and a half. If you're just controlled by it, it could be that what you truly fear is the judgment that awaits after death. But dear friend, God can remove that fear from you if you would only turn from your sin and believe on Christ and let the love of God change you. But what does this look like? 1 John 4, I just want to read it again. What do these phrases look like? When it says, as he is, so also are we in this world. What does that look like? If he is love, what does it look like for us also to be loved in this world? What does it look like for us to love because he first loved us? What does it look like for someone to truly love his brother because they are loved by God? What does it look like to, to love the one who you can see? Husbands. Fathers, let me ask you some questions. Does your wife or your children, do they, do they walk around in fear? Or to put it in today's language, do they walk around on eggshells? Do you raise your voice? Do you intimidate? Do you strong arm your wife? Do you always have to win the argument? Do you usually get your way with your children? How do you speak to your family, men? A, a, a good clue is if they, if they're, if when you're done with them, when you're done talking to them, and they leave you looking down at the ground, you've crushed them. Proverbs 15.4 says, A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in the tongue crushes the spirit. Men, are, is your tongue perverted with a lack of love, with, with domination, with anger and harshness? You see, true biblical manliness is not intimidation or tyranny. That is not biblical manhood. True biblical manhood is Christ-likeness. What is that? Humility. Selflessness. Sacrifice. Giving of yourself for the good of others. That's what it means to be the true man of God. Not just throwing your weight around. That's why your family is living in fear, because love has not been perfected in the home. 
Love is not fully grown and completed and matured. Love, as it were, is just a tiny infant still in your home. And you've neglected it. If that's you, then your love is not perfected. It's not matured. You need to change, men. Your wife and your children must be confident in your love. That it doesn't change with the weather or how the day went. They need to be secure in your character as a man of God, a man of love, faithful to fulfill your role as a servant leader, no matter what. Let me tell you this. It won't happen if you're glued to your phone. Your love will not be perfected in the home if you are glued to the TV. It's not going to happen. Ladies, women, you need this too, don't we? Don't you? How are you with your children? Are you overcritical? Always negative? Short-tempered with those around you? Quickly irritated at the little things? Titus would tell you, love your children. Love your husband. In a world that wants to ruin your children, they do. They might have the best intentions, but they will ruin your children because they're going to lead them into sin. In a world like that, you mothers must be the place that they can run to for safety and love. Is your home a place of love? Homemaker, is your home a place of refuge for your husband where he's bashed on and and treated ill all day at work and he finds refuge at home, a relief? Or is it just more of the same? Church, we need this as well. As a church, we need to fulfill this calling of love together to one another. You see, fear has to do with judgment, it says. But perfect or mature love casts out fear. So when a new person walks through our doors, it's the first thing that you do, Christian. It's the first thing that you do is look for something that's wrong. That's judgment. That's wrong. And that will breed fear, not love in our church. No, we must be quick to communicate love to the outsider. And yes, of course, the most loving thing that we can do is to give them the gospel of Christ. And that requires us to tell, us, tell them about their sin. But it must be communicated in love. That critical, judgmental spirit is not the gospel. Especially if it just stays there with all the things that are wrong with that person. And does not quickly move to the forgiveness that's offered at the cross. That's not love. Bring them to the cross. We don't just do this with outsiders or the new people either. We do this with each other. We must love each other. Church, we remember fear has to do with judgment. But perfect love casts out fear. 
So in our own church, don't we do this at times? We judge one another, don't we? We condemn our brother. We condemn our sister for things that are not sin. We alienate one another over petty differences or, or even small sins, even small offenses, and we don't allow love to cover those things. The result of this kind of attitude, this judgmental, critical spirit, is fear. And so we'll go around church, we'll show up, but we'll constantly worry about what they're going to say about us or do to us. So we just keep our distance. We don't bring up the past. We just stay distant from that brother or sister. That's not love. Period. If you withhold love from your brother or sister whom you can see, it says, then your love for God whom you cannot see will not grow. Look what it says. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So you might be a Christian, but if you're mistreating your brother or your sister in Christ, this ability to love God will be hindered. What does that mean? You will, remain, you will remain stagnant, stuck, and stunted in your spiritual growth. Have you noticed that in your life? Why am I not growing? Why am I not getting victory? It's because you mistreat your brother, your sister. You mistreat your wife or your children. Get the log out of your eye. I've seen this happen so many times. So many times in my past. So many times in, in the church through the years. I've seen this where a brother or a sister just can't get along with that person and doesn't pursue love, isn't a peacemaker. And so they just stay where they're at, blinded to their sin, Blinded to their immaturities. I've seen it time and time again. Don't let that be you. This is how you apply the love of God in your life. Love your brothers and sisters the way God loves you. Taking the first step to be the first to show love, right? We love one another because God first loved us. So the way that you love that other person is you first love them. That's how you love. You take the first step to be the first one to show love. Be quick to forgive, pursuing peace, pursuing reconciliation, humbling yourself for the sake of one another. Love one another. Church, we need to believe in the love of God. We need to be changed by the love of God. You know what it's like to love selflessly? And sacrificially, you know what it's like already. Just look at your Savior. You know what that looks like. And so as you grow in your love for God and towards one another, God will give you greater and greater assurance for the day of judgment, and you'll be free from fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, oh how short we fall. 
Oh, we think we're doing all right. But we're blind. We're short-sighted. We, we ignore our shortcomings. Oh God, open our eyes to how we can be changed by you. Show us how we can be more Christ-like in our lives. I pray, Lord, for the one that doesn't know you, that they would come to know the love of God today. That they would be set free, released from the chains of fear today. Oh God, we as your children, we have nothing to fear. If the ultimate danger, your judgment, your wrath is taken care of, everything else, we, we shouldn't be afraid of it, God. Cause your people, Lord, to be confident in your love. May we dwell upon the love of God for us this week, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.